Waterhouse thinks that really the RCA radio tube manual is like a ball and chain holding Alan back. If he would just work with pure ideas like a proper mathematician, he could go as fast as thought. As it happens, Alan has become fascinated by the incarnations of pure ideas in the physical world. The underlying math of the universe is like light streaming in through the window. Alan is not satisfied with merely knowing that it streams in. He blows smoke into the air to make the light visible. Yeah, I do have a story for launch day. So I was working from the beach at Cape Hatteras, kind of the first full week of my working from the road experiment I've been doing. And it, it went on the whole pretty well. Um, but, you know, I wanted to take some time off. So I took that afternoon off after spending the morning working and doing some social media and stuff like that and, and making sure our launch was good. And I went fishing. Uh, I think I went surfing and fishing or fishing and surfing. I don't remember in what order, but at one point I was fishing and the sun had about an hour left in the sky and I had three lines in the water and life was just really, really good. And then I, I got a strike, you know, my pole bent over and I reeled it in and there was a, a or a on the line, which is not something people like to catch uh, because they're, they're, you know, they're not... Con- huh. I'm, I suppose they might be considered good eating, but they also, some of them sting you, and, like, I don't know how to tell the difference between the ones with stingers and the ones without, Um, and they're kind of hard to get off the line because their mouths are flat and cartilaginous, so I, like, struggled and got that fish off the line and managed to get it back in the water without it stinging me, and then immediately got another strike, and it was another (laughs) and I was like, ah! And, um... (laughs) And so then I, I texted my uncle about it, and uh, I think this is the thing that upper middle brow listeners might appreciate about this. So in my family, there is a superstition about naming that fish. Uh, the idea being that if you use the word for that fish, you're likely to catch more of them, which you don't want to do. And so hmm. there, I have family members who will sometimes be holding up a very obvious or and refer to it as a flounder. But I have taken to referring to that fish as the Scottish fish. <laughs> Which... <laughs> okay, so we can't, the name, all right, we won't, we won't say the name of the, the Scottish fish now. Yeah, I'm gonna have to bleep uh, it when we edit this episode. Um, yeah, 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 all the listeners will be really confused for like that first few minutes until they get to this exact moment. Yeah, the, um, it's, it's, I think there's, there's not a huge, I am definitely, you know, one of the few people in the tiny overlapping bit of the Venn diagram that includes theater people and like Outer Banks surf fishermen, as I think my uncle is too. Uh, but it's it's a pretty small uh, cadre. <laughs> in that yeah, that is a yeah. Overlap. I sometimes I sometimes find myself in that uh, in in other in other contexts where right. I'm like I'm like huh like how many like Dungeons and Dragons playing triathlete people are there out there? Travails um, of the Jock Nerd. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's funny. I, is very good eating, but I wonder if it's just a different kind of that you are fishing down there. I, it, it, it could be. It also could be that it is good eating, but just the local fishermen and the people in my family don't know how to dress it or clean it properly. Mm-hmm. I have heard of people using a hole punch, like a giant punch, um, to punch the wings into sort of faux scallops before. Uh, uh, I, I don't, I've never seen this. 
but wow, I, that's I, a little that's a little grotesque. It's so, I mean, it's sort <laughs> of like the rumor about the uh, you know um, calamari actually being pig intestine, uh, uh, which my friend Ben did a lovely story for This American Life about um, a few years ago. Um, so I don't know if that's true or not, but maybe yes, I should actually learn how to how to or to clean one of those or and I should probably look up what the vag limits are and things like that but mm-hmm. whenever anybody I know has caught them we've always just used a lot of swear words and then very gingerly removed the hook without trying, <laughs> trying not to get stung even if yeah. in many situations it's a and not a so you know this precaution from anybody who actually like has good species identification is like absurd um, it's yeah. like worried about being stung by a wolf spider or bitten by a you know like a, a wolf spider or something like that but uh, which you know they look scary but they're completely harmless totally um yeah when you when you cook it is is beautiful um it's a it's a real like french bistro classic um is eaten browned butter um, and when you cook it, uh, it sort of fans out on the plate and there are these like striations that usually kind of match the fluting that you would put on like a traditional French, like flat bistro plate. And it's gorgeous. Like it's total, like, like the usual, tr- uh, like preparation is like browned butter capers and s- and it's like incredibly simple and it's so good. It's just classic French, like, oh my God, this is amazing. I'm looking forward to when we have a large enough audience to justify a newsletter so that we can give a recipe of the week, things to read, some kind of update from like my sport and your sport of choice. And I, I, know, I don't know what else. Maybe a photo from the beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather eclectic array of interests that we're assembling for the upper middle Totally. Route. I love that idea. But I think, uh, yeah, we do lead offbeat enough existences that uh, that kind of thing might be entertaining. There's a sort of upper middle dirt bag to yeah. the whole yeah. thing, right? Like, <laughs> exactly. like you and I are like, like I showed up in Portland with my 20 year old backpacking backpack, which had my SLR camera, my chef knife and my espresso maker in it, you know, because there you go. I wasn't going to be very, without my yeah, chef and my espresso maker. I think you've actually, I think you've coined our, our newsletter. Our newsletter title is definitely upper middle dirt bag. Upper middle dirt bag with two G's or just yeah. one? Oh, with two, with two G's for sure. Sounds good. Sounds um, good. Let's see. Um, we're, we should start getting going. Um, I've got a reading. I think this is a good, uh, this is on page 342 in my, in my edition. Cool. Um, but I think this is a good, uh, this is a good place to start. Um, this is a Lawrence Pritchard Waterhouse section, uh, and he is talking with Alan Turing. Um, this is sort of one third of the way into the book listener. And by this point, Lawrence and Alan have mostly broken a lot of the German Enigma codes. Um, and Turing is a little bored and he is looking for something new to focus his attention on. It is built from old ideas. Ideas we talked about in New Jersey years ago, Alan says. Brisk and dismissive is his tone. Gloomy is his face. He is hugging the RCA radio tube manual to himself with one arm, doodling in a notebook with the other. Waterhouse thinks that really the RCA radio tube manual is like a ball and chain holding Alan back. If he would just work with pure ideas like a proper mathematician, he could go as fast as thought. As it happens, Alan has become fascinated by the incarnations of pure ideas in the physical world. The underlying math of the universe is like light streaming in through the window. 
Alan is not satisfied with merely knowing that it streams in. He blows smoke into the air to make the light visible. He sits in meadows gazing at pine cones and flowers, tracing the mathematical patterns in their structure, and he dreams about electron winds blowing over the glowing filaments and screens of radio tubes and, in their surges and eddies, capturing something of what is going on in his own brain. Turing is neither a mortal nor a god. He is Antaeus. That he bridges the mathematical and physical worlds is his strength and his weakness. You know, it's interesting. As you, I read that yesterday for the second time. Um, and it's interesting, as you were reading it right now, it's providing an answer to one of the questions I had going into our conversation, which is, what genre of book is this? And like that passage makes me think, oh, this is, this is a Genesis story. This book is an origin story. It's an origin myth, in a way. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that's entirely true, but it certainly has an element of that. And that passage is certainly, you know, that's like, you know, on the sixth day, Alan Turing discovered vacuum tubes, you know? Yeah. What would you say it's an origin story of? Um, well, the obvious answer is computing. Um but I think it's a little bit more complicated than that because I think it's the relationship between microcomputers and information. And probably given the name of the book, the, 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 the tendency or the desire or the technology around making that information private, which is actually mm-hmm. necessary to making a network of computers, a say inter-network of computers functional for some of the things we want to use it for, such as, you know, sharing our absolute personal identities with the world in a promotional way or making relationships or exchanging currency. I'm I'm riffing mm-hmm. right now, but that's what I think it's an origin story of. Yeah, you paused when you said it's a relationship between microcomputing and information. And I think I, I have an idea of why there was a big pause there. Um, but, but talk to me about, uh, talk to me a little bit about what, what you were searching for. Like what were the concepts you were searching for when you, when you were making that pause? Well, I think because the, the simple answer is that it's, it's an origin story of the computer, right? Like the machine I have on my desk right now, you have on your desk right now, and then you have another one probably in your pocket, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, my parents have one in their house and then there's also one in the thermostat and there's one inside my car you know that controls the the transmission and all of those things and is getting information from the EGR and the TPS and all of those things um so there, there's that but it's more than that because it's it's an origin story i think what i was driving at is that stevenson is fascinated with how people are going to use that technology and we're at a mm-hmm. moment in history i think he's identified a moment in history where those needs were starting to become present and therefore, you know, necessity became the mother of invention at the hands Mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, Alan Turing and fictional Lawrence Pritchard Waterhouse uh, and, and some others. 
And so it's not simply to say, like, what's the origin of this box that we all have two or three of or ten of, you know, in our homes nowadays. I mean, my audio recorder is a computer. It's it's not just that. It's it's also an origin of what we might call the Internet. But it's more than just the Internet, too, because it's also a system of it's a it's a complex of systems that allow us to transact business and put so much of our community and our economy into zeros and ones and connect those things together throughout the world in a way that allows humanity to achieve something uh, new and different um, and not always good and not always bad, but certainly more powerful and more connected. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, am, I, I mean, am I talking nonsense, or are you? Are you? Are you? No, no. You're, you're doing a you're doing a really nice job of like putting into words a lot of what what the reason why I think I gravitated towards that passage, which is when I read it, I was like, oh, this is kind of one of the nut graphs of the book. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and uh, listener, if you're not familiar with the idea of a nut graph, it is a hilarious term from journalism. Um, and like a lot of weird, a, a term uh, that Stevenson terms. would find very hilarious, at least the Stevenson who wrote this particular book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right up there with ass dick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> ass dick and nut graph. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, all sorts of hilarious little journalistic, um, like why, why are we abbreviating subheading with deck, um, or subtitling with deck, uh, all these just strange arcane lingos, but I really think this passage has this double life that you've done a really nice job of identifying about the um, the sort of physical computer, um, like this analog device that moved from punch cards and tape um, into what feels like a magical electronic device, but is actually just a disc with like a million transistors on it. Um, but this passage feels liturgical. It feels like uh, like a religious passage, which is a lot of the way that we treat information movement these days. Yeah, and I think this—I th- I really think those are some of the questions that this book is wrestling with. Yeah, um, what is physical and what is divine? Um, and and this passage is a really nice one where you know, and I just love that section about um, electron winds blowing over glowing filaments and screens of radio tubes. It's another one of those Stevenson flights of beauty Yeah, that I spend a lot of this book being like, can we have more of that and less of the other analog plot stuff, which I think we're going to shift our attention to now. There's also, yeah, there's a lot of Abbott and Costello in this book too, you know? Oh my God. There's a lot of just like shtick. Yeah. So much stick. Um, so let's, uh, yeah, let's jump into our plot summary because I think we're actually going to cover some of that shtick here. Yeah. Um, and then I've got some questions for you about it. I added Enoch Root, but then was like, uh, there's really only one. He deserves big, a few words. Thing. He deserves a few words. I mean, I would say like Enoch Root is the avatar of the set of ideas you just articulated about Mm -hmm. the liturgical nature of information. Um, And, you know, when we were talking about Snow Crash, we talked about how I posited that Stevenson sees no differences between hackers and wizards. And, you know, and Enoch Root is another case in point. Totally. Yeah, he is. He is. uh, He's another one of the author inserts, I feel like. Yeah. Um, But um, 
let's uh, consider Randy Waterhouse. So Randy Waterhouse is our closest to the present day character. Um, the, the present day action of this book happens in the late 90s, turn of the millennium. And uh, Randy is in with his company Epiphyte that we talked about last time. And we basically learn in this, there's a lot of like corporate um, cloak and dagger stuff in this section where one of their partners who is referred to as the dentist begins to want to kind of get in on Epiphyte's. Um, Epiphyte has kind of um, hit it, clearly offering something that other people want. And uh, their value has uh, skyrocketed. And because of that, the dentist wants more of them. Douglas MacArthur Shafto, who is the grandson of Bobby Shafto, grandson, son, son, direct son of our other character, Bobby Shafto, who Epiphyte has hired to do a ocean floor survey, has found something on the ocean floor. We learned earlier that um, Douglas MacArthur Shafto and his daughter, America Shafto, uh, here to referred to as Amy, are kind of treasure hunters. And uh, they have discovered a U-boat on the floor of the South Pacific. Uh, they discover that there's a document inside the U-boat that has the name Waterhouse on it, which is pretty pertinent to Randy. Um, Randy attends a dance with Douglas MacArthur Shafto and Amy Shafto, where he has to wear a suit and he dances with Amy and several other characters and is given a tip by one of his dancing partners about uh, some, some mysterious coordinates that he and Douglas MacArthur Shafto and some other characters make a long trip to discover that there's basically $120 million worth of gold that is just hanging out in the jungle. Um, the reason it's just hanging out there is that it is so heavy and there's so much army and guerrilla activity that there's really no way to get the gold out of the jungle. There is some discussion as to why somebody tipped Randy off to the presence of all of that gold. Uh, his business partner, Avi, thinks it is somebody trying to communicate to Epiphyte that uh, whoever is communicating that would like to use their services to launch a new currency. Hmm. Um, Randy heads home to California where he's got to sort out some personal details um, and actually ends up having some more personal issues. Uh, and there's an earthquake uh, by the time that we wrap up this particular arc of the book. Anything I missed from Randy's uh, sort of arc of this section of the book? Just that Amy um, flies also to California, thinking that perhaps Randy is off to have a tryst uh, with his ex. Um, and in a sort of funny, maybe sexist sort of series of events, uh, rents a U-Haul along with two of her Shafto cousins from North Carolina and uh, wrecks uh, Randy's Acura, uh, but then later kind of feels bad about it. So now not only is Randy in California, but so is Amy Shafto and two Shafto cousins, Marcus Aurelius and Robin. It's very funny in the uh, the... We, we are sometimes using a plot summary um, helper. And uh, in this particular plot summary, the author of the plot summary refers to those two cousins first as Bo and Duke Shafto. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Bo, uh, no, not Bo. And, not Bo and Luke. Duke. Yeah, Bo yeah, and, no, that, that's exactly. There we go. That's exactly right. Uh, do you want me to do Bobby? 
Yeah, yeah. You take Bobby Shafto. Okay. We'll we'll sort of stumble through Lawrence together. Bobby Shafto has been sent on a mission. Uh, Another one of these moments of sort of racial edgy humor where he and the rest of Detachment 2702 minus uh, Lawrence Waterhouse, who is uh, back in England, but with uh, Enoch Root, this, uh, I guess, who I'm not sure we talked about him last time or not, but he is a chaplain who is an intriguing German slash Australian missionary, part of the Anzac Corps, but he's also part of uh, Detachment 2702, a mysterious, fascinating character, very intellectual. They're on this mission where they are on a steamer impersonating a bunch of black Jamaicans to create an excuse for why the Allies know the location of a milch cow uh, submarine. In the midst of this adventure, kind of creating this excuse, they are sunk. Uh, the submarine uh, captained by a man named Bischoff and his subordinate Beck. Sometimes Beck is in control because Bischoff spends part of the novel in a straitjacket. Bischoff is an extremely talented submarine captain, and we gather that he's not necess- he's a loyal German, but not necessarily um, all in with the Nazi ideology. He and Beck interrogate Bobby Shafto, Uh, Bobby Shafto is also in heroin withdrawal during this time, um, and or or morphine withdrawal, I should say. And they learn through a very confusing series of chapters uh, that there was probably a submarine full of gold that their bosses dispatched at some point, and that seems very interesting to both of them. The other thing that happens is... The Allies and Bletchley Park are very keen to not let Beck and Bischoff communicate that they have captured Shafto and Root. And so they engage in something called Funkspiel, uh, which is translated as radio games, although I think the direct translation from the German is smelly talk. Um, And um, so they create basically... A, a message that suggests that the commandos have raided this submarine and that it's now being occupied by the Allies, such that now the German Navy and the Allied Navy is trying to locate the submarine and sink it. Um, however, um, Bischoff and Beck elude them and six months later end up in, I believe, Sweden, where they kind of take a vacation from the war in this neutral country. And Bobby takes up... Uh, with this uh, Finnish father and daughter, and he works for the father and uh, (laughs) engages in sexual activity with the daughter from time to time (laughs) um, and gets to know some other sort of refugees from the war. He becomes good friends with Bischoff, and I'm trying to remember if there's... Oh, and eventually Rudolf von Hackenhaber shows up, um, crashes, I believe, and these guys start hatching some kind of conspiracy that is a bit confusing but involves stealing the gold. The other thing is that, um, I don't remember the name, um, the woman, oh, Julieta is Shafto's on and and off again lover. 
Uh, Julieta finds out about um, Bobby's uh, lover in the Philippines, uh, Glory, and gives him a bit of a guilt trip. Shafto responds appropriately to the guilt trip and realizes he needs to get back to the Philippines and take care of Glory, and he might even possibly have a child that he needs to look after, and so he starts kind of, he gets over his morphine addiction and decides he needs to find a way to get back to the Philippines and fulfill his, uh, you know, responsibilities to glory. And it's confusing to me whether this is the same gold as the gold in the U-boat that was, you know, sunk off the Norwegian or the Tagium, Tagmian coast in an earlier chapter, or if it's different gold, I'm not sure. And there's a thing Stevenson does, which is he often will confuse you by including details and you don't know did you just miss something 300 pages ago? And if you had paid more attention, you would have known it? Or has has he not told you yet? <laughs> and sometimes right. the answer is A, and sometimes the answer is B, uh, which is a bit tricky. Yeah, very tricky. Yeah, I had the same the same questions and problems. Was that the same gold from U-Boat 553, uh, which is the U-Boat that um, Bobby saw the gold on when he was getting the safe out and it is it is very confusing and, and one of my one of my big questions about this arc is going to come out of this. All right, Lawrence Waterhouse, our, our third main character of the book um, starts off with him um, heading back to Bletchley Park after his time um, at and Tagum, which reader is spelled in the book uh, just completely hilariously. It's spelled, Q-W-G-H-L-M. And I think you did some research about whether or not this is jokes about Welsh or if this is actually some real thing. Yeah, I, I, I believe that, that the relationship between Tagum and the British Empire is similar to Guernsey and Jersey. I also think that the joke of the spelling of everything, the romanization of Tagmian is a bit of a joke on the, the Irish language and how the Irish tend to assert that their language is not closely related to English or Scottish or other Celtic languages, but it's its own thing. I suspect there's a little bit of poking fun at the number of consonants used in Welsh and also, yep. I believe, the Cornish language. So so there's, it's basically an ethnic joke aimed at the Irish, the Guernsians, the Jerseyans, the Welsh and the Cornish, and probably the Scottish for good measure. Um, although there's also, the Tagmians also like to take a lot of digs at Scottish wool. It reminds me of the fake national anthem of Kazakhstan in uh, Borat, uh, which includes the line, you know, where they, a dig on, I think, Uzbekistan's potassium. Inferior potassium! <laughs> yeah, there's, there's this great section where it's posited that the reason that Tagmium wool is better is because the uh, the climate is so hideous that the sheep there through um, and this is so Stevenson esque like through long repetitions of evolution have uh, have evolved a much uh, more tightly coiled wool pattern yeah yeah in their wool and so that is why um, Tagmium wool is superior to Scottish wool I believe if you actually read the, that bulkhead of fine marketing literature the Patagonia catalog you'll find similar claims made about merino wool 
And I don't know mm. if that was the case uh, when Stevenson was writing this or not, although pretty close to it, because I remember going to the Patagonia store in Freeport, Maine in around 2000 or 2001 and hearing a lot of claims about the non-itchiness of merino wool mm. for, for that very reason, that the fibers were longer. Let's, uh, what else, what else do we get with, uh, I mean, like Lawrence sort of rads shotgun on, on hearing that, uh, Enoch Root and Shafto are probably going to, are probably condemned to death by everything that you talked about with the funk spiel. Right. Um, well then he gets sent to Australia, um, to basically cover for the code breaking in the Pacific. You know, the work that he's actually doing there is a little bit unclear, but he falls in with a contingent of Tagmians and falls in love with Mary. Do you want to try saying her last name uh, in the Tagmian pronunciation? Oh my God. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's something hilarious where like in English it ends up as Smith, Smith. but like it's spelled something like C-C-H-M-C-M-H-D. He falls in love with a woman, a Tagmian woman, and he starts doing some work um, for a code breaking operation there, he also repairs the organ in a uh, Tagmian church in a really wonderful uh, series of paragraphs where he starts kind of doing some improvisational music on the organ and, in the, and at that moment has a flight of insight about how to store computer memory, essentially. And, and just as Mary Smith is showing up perhaps to sort of, you know, pay court uh, to this dashing young organ player, he hurries past her because he has to suddenly, you know, do whatever he needs to do to put this plan in operation. I do, I do want to pay, I, I do, you know, this, this particular section where Lawrence graphs out his ability to focus based oh, on yeah. when the time of his last ejaculation was, uh, whether it was a manual override, which is his term for masturbation, right. or if it was sort of, arrived at through the presence of, of, of an actual other person um, and the kind of like tailing off or, um, or uh, you know, lessening returns on that as he is falling in love with Mary. Uh, there are like equations and graphs that are very, very funny. Yeah. And it is, it is one of those sections of the book where it does feel a little, uh, it feels a little on the edge, but maybe not terribly so. Um, and it was just a very nice way to dramatize Lawrence's perhaps movement from immaturity to maybe a more mature relationship. Yeah, yeah. It's a kind of nerdy way of falling in love. Yeah. And it reminds me a little bit of Russell Crowe's character in A Beautiful Mind, kind of confessing his attraction to uh, Jennifer Connelly. Is that the actress? Yeah. Uh, and I think th I think Stevenson's going for a similar thing here, which is that basically, you know, Lawrence Waterhouse is realizing that he wants to spend the rest of his life with this particular woman. Yeah, I love the, you know, it, there's this moment when he's discussing all this where where he talks about it moving from like a straightforward single variable equation to a differential equation, yeah. uh, which which I think is just a marvelous metaphor for perhaps the act of falling in love. Yeah. Um, where like, things suddenly don't make sense in a in a linear and direct fashion anymore. And you do need a calculus to kind of try to pin down what it is that you're feeling and the things that you're going through. And yeah, I really I really do love that chapter. 
Um, which which uh, let's see. Oh, we should. We do have one more character to recap. Godo. Um, uh, Godo Dengo. Yeah. Godo wanna... Dengo was a minor presence in the first third. Um, he was. He kind of became frenemies with Bobby Shafto in Shanghai before the war broke out, um, or bef I should say before America and Japan went to war. Um, and we hear a little bit about his misadventures in New Guinea, um, but then he ends up on a, a transport ship or a ship, um, and he witnesses one of the very first deployments of torpedo bombing, uh, which is a game-changing tactic in the Pacific, uh, where the Japanese Navy's sort of traditional battleships and transport ships really are powerless to defend themselves against this new tactic of torpedo bombing, where a relatively slow-moving aircraft can drop a relatively slow-moving project projectile into the water and destroy, you know, half of a Navy. Um, and Godo um, survives a horrific attack, one of probably my favorite action sequences in the entire book, ends up in the water, swims through uh, oil and fuel, uh, is burned but not fatally, survives strafings, survives shark attacks, and along with three other survivors of what must have been tens of thousands of Japanese soldiers, washes up in New Guinea, where after a series of misadventures with um, some local indigenous people and some hostile fauna, um, is the only survivor, finds his way uh, to another contingent of Japanese, eventually is recalled to Tokyo, um, where he is then assigned to start working on a mining project in Kinakuta, uh, in, you know, in the same place that the uh, Epiphyte 2 is working on building their data haven facility as well, adjacent to the Philippines, more or less in the Philippines, but a fictional independent polity. And Godo Dengu also, there's a lot of attention paid to Godo Dengu's demoralization and his essential realization that the Japanese Empire is going to lose this war and they're going to lose the war because they're unable to adapt to the changing technologies and circumstances of warfare. And as much as Japanese revile and disregard the Americans, like Bobby Shafto, uh, Goto Dengo has to admit that the Americans are better at adapting to the changing circumstances than the Japanese are. And so he's undergoing a change. Yeah. And I think, you know, he, we also get to kind of you know, ride along with him as he becomes really disenchanted with the aims of the Japanese government. Right. Um, he's basically assigned uh, towards the end of the section to pretty much dig the vaults for where where the Japanese empire is going to try to store their wealth right. um, as a way of protecting it as they realize that they're probably going to lose this war. And he's seeing, essentially, he's realizing that like him, Many of his superiors in the Japanese Navy and government have realized the war is unwinnable. And he's starting to realize that rather than, I don't know, surrender in a way that will preserve as much of their state and people and the lives of the soldiers as possible, or, you know, retreat back to the home islands in order to salvage what's left, these leaders are basically choosing to enrich themselves and abandon the soldiers who've died by the thousands uh, and hundreds of thousands on their behalf. And it's, it's, 
it's mirrored by the same thing that's going on in the European theater where Hermann Goering is, uh, is also trying to enrich himself at, towards the tail end of the war. Um, which brings me to my big question, Jesse, about the plot arc of this particular third of the book. Yeah. Um, what is the MacGuffin of Cryptonomicon? I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's the gold. Right. It's the gold. It's the gold. Okay, what what is the entire what is the mission critical plot element of the th- over three hundred pages that we read for this section? What what do we what is the sole thing we learn about the MacGuffin in this three hundred pages? It exists. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it. We learn that <laughs> there is gold. It exists. Let's go get it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I hadn't really put that together. I mean, I, 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 I mean, my question for you, similar to this, is who are the antagonists? You know, uh-huh. because in 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 you know making a study, and especially in the last few years of my career, as I've tried to get better at storytelling, and and I've been making more of a study of fiction. You know, I've I've learned that for a novel or a story to be good, you need protagonists and then you need forces of opposition. And it really helps if those forces of opposition are embodied in characters we call antagonists. Are there any antagonists in this novel? Well, that that does bring me to one, one thing that you have said about Stevenson in some of our early episodes, that like, a big chunk of any Stevenson book is setting the pieces on the chessboard. And then for the other chunk of the book is just watching them fight. Yeah. And I think we are still in board setup around page 600. And I think that we have some hints about the antagonists. Like the dentist is kind of like, okay, we're probably going to have to do some work against the dentist because he wants a piece of Epiphyte Corp. Um, But I don't I don't have a clear answer for you about like who who is the real antagonist that the main characters are working against in order to derive entertaining and plausible plot. Yeah. Yeah. I there's a part of me that suspects this entire novel is just an excuse to tell a lot of fun stories about World War II and cryptography and the invention of computers. And certainly that is one of the purposes of this novel. Um, whether it's actually a good story or not, I feel like it's too early for me to tell <laughs> uh, two thirds of the way through. Um, and, and, you know, it, it is you've acknowledged that the MacGuffin is the gold, the purpose of our protagonists that unite them is go get the gold. That's not all that important in the grand scheme of things. I mean, I like them, you know, I like Goto Dengu, so I would be very happy for Goto Dengu to retire rich and comfortably. He sure went through a lot, you know. Uh, I kind of like Randy and Avi, okay. I like Lawrence, all right. I like Bobby, you know, I'm happy for them to get some gold. But, but um, you know, there is this point in this book too, and early in this passage where... Uh, Randy and Epiphyte are learning that this this their business venture, which is building some kind of data haven, that the the people most interested in it right now are very unsavory. Uh, they are criminals. Uh, they are like the leaders of the People's Republic Army of China. Uh, they are bagmen for the Marcoses. Um, you know, they are unsavory sorts of people. And Avi does a kind of pep talk 
to Randy that's like, no, this is important. What we're doing is important. First of all, it's like Fresno. It starts out as the Wild West, but then it turns in the utopia of Fresno, which I find to be a little bit of a weak <laughs> argument. It's, it's sort of the man who shot Liberty Valance and Shane. You know, the Wild West had to be wild for a while, and then it was tamed and became a place for, you know, white people to live and raise families. Um, it's a weak argument. And then his other argument is, no, we need a place to secretly store the handbook we're going to create, which will keep people from ever being genocided. It's a handbook of guerrilla tactics. <laughs> and it's like, well, why does that need to be secret? Avi's obsessed with genocide. He's obsessed with the Holocaust. If you really think the solution to that is create a manual of guerrilla tactics, which I think is a questionable solution, could you not just simply print a million copies of it and put it at every single public library or do what the get why does it have to be in a secret crypt yeah. so i guess what i'm saying is i i see a problem of stakes in this novel thus far when it comes to the big plot uh i do like the characters i am incredibly entertained by the setting and the set pieces i enjoy the writing um, but at the moment, I don't necessarily care what's going to happen. I mean, are mm -hmm. you with me here? Like, do, do, do you find yourself caring <laughs> about the outcome yeah. of this novel? Totally. I, I'm, yeah, I'm in the same boat. Uh, I've put in this little note here, the, the parable of the two dungeon masters, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm going to take us on a little digression okay. to, to kind of unpack what I think is happening here. But you're right. I don't really care about what is going. I, I would like for the principals to, to kind of have things work out for them. But I, I am also mostly here for the digressions. Yeah. Um, and so this this parable I want to take you on. Okay. Um, so when you when you return or when you start playing Dungeons and Dragons or or any role Re playing return would um, be I, I played yeah. I played a fair amount as a teenager. Got it. So you you may have in fact experienced this. I don't know if you were the dungeon master in your in your teenage years. Rarely. Or if you were occasionally, a player. But rarely. Usually a player. So maybe you experienced this. I, I was the dungeon master when I, in my teenage years and, and continue to gravitate to that role as I'm playing it again as an adult. Um, there, is, there are two critical errors that one can make as a dungeon master. And the first is the, I'm going to tell a great story, uh, where you introduce antagonist after antagonist and plot thread and MacGuffin and uh, it's all very complex and it makes so much sense to you because you were the one who was creating it and living it. Yeah. And very quickly, your players are like, we have no idea what's going on. We don't know what any of this means or where any of this is headed. And please, can we can we just go on a dungeon crawl and kill some goblins? And I imagine there are moments where like, they want to go down the left passage and you want them to go down the right passage. So as they start walking down the left passage, there's an earthquake and a number of rocks, you know, yeah. uh, uh, fall in front of the left passage, leaving only the right passage for your characters who are supposed to be exploring this infinite world of possibilities uh, to um, to pursue, you know, to pursue. Yeah, totally. So you're you're railroading them into this gigantic and very convoluted story that only you can see because you're creating it every week, yeah. and it makes so much sense to you. And I think this is the source of some of what you said about Stevenson. Did he actually set this up, or did like did he just think he set it up and never actually bothered to put it in the book? Um, so I think there's some of that going on. 
The other side of this parable is um, is what happens when you um, when you leave too much agency uh, to interesting characters, and you're like, well, yeah. Tell me about like your character and what they're interested in and where they want to go and what's important for them and what their character arc is. And pretty quickly, you have amassed four or five novel-sized character arcs that as a DM, you are desperately trying to shoehorn into every session. Um, And you get the same exact outcome, which is exhaustion from everybody. And I think that that is the other thing that's also going on here where he is he's trying to do too many character arcs at the same time. Um, And what we end up with is the fact that we're talking about, like we don't even really know what the the central plot thrust of the novel is over 600 pages into the book. Um, I think it's kind of amazing that he's able to create something that is still compelling and people want to read it um, because of the set pieces and because the characters are funny and the narration is funny and there are, really interesting things that happen. But yeah, I do. I think that, and and Stevenson talks about playing role-playing games in this book exactly. And for sure he has played it before. I think that this is still early Stevenson. I think he is wrestling with some of the, 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 the two poles of the parable of the two dungeon masters. Yeah. I think that, I think that's right. And I think the other thing too, that I, I would want to acknowledge about this is we talked about the prescience of Stevenson in Snow Crash. There's like the opposite of prescience in this. Uh, he is doing a very good job looking back at moments in our history and pointing at things that some of the historians have missed about what was important about World War II in these era. Like this was the first book um, where I remember learning who Alan Turing was and his contributions to the war. And this was the first book I read that really helped me understand a lot about the invention of computing systems. Um, And that's a huge, if you look back at what became important about World War II, you know, we sometimes talk about the post-war boom or various military technology or the Pax Americana or the EU or the Nuremberg trials. And I actually think like, yes, those things were important, but maybe computing and the internet is perhaps more important and Stevenson is doing a good job pointing at that and mm. and and now that might seem a little bit more obvious to us but maybe only because a lot of people read this book and um, the insights that would have been relatively new since they didn't really learn much about Bletchley Park and code breaking I think until the 80s or 90s since a lot of that stuff was classified um, you, you know that th- there is some there is some genuine insight here about history and the meaning of those very important events. Yeah, Stevenson usually gets called a speculative fiction writer. It's really interesting that this is much more in the the vein of a historical novel. Um, that yeah. the the action and the interest is about layering on characters that we enjoy onto what is basically not a revisionist piece of history, but sort of an exposing of a particular history that a lot of us haven't seen. Yeah. And maybe that's one of the reasons why this book, I think, ultimately succeeds is because it does have this like, oh, I would like to I would like to know how this subplot layers on top of the larger arc of World War II history. Um, my my grandfather was part of the team that kind of got radar up and running yeah. um, during World War II. And there's there's moments in this book where I'm like, 
oh, this is really interesting because yeah. this is a lot like imagining the existence of my grandfather. And there's um, this amazing book from MIT. It's called A Yearbook of Radar. And it, it um, chronicles with like a lot of pictures and a lot of history, the installation of radar throughout the Mediterranean. And there is this picture of my grandfather, like in Malta, of, you know, like an antenna and stuff like that. And it's this moment where I'm like, oh my gosh, like my grandfather is part Lawrence Waterhouse. Yeah, yeah. And you know, my grandfather was taking photos of the uh, nuclear tests you know, in the Bikini Atoll and out in, um, out in uh, New Mexico. And, uh, you know, he wasn't involved in that technology, but documenting the tests. Um, and yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I just came up with a new subgenre name, you know, if, if this novel had been set roughly 75 years earlier in the past, you know, it might be a steampunk novel. I, I, I think it's, it's diesel punk. You know, and and and, <laughs> and and engage with sort of similar questions, right? And maybe you wouldn't call it diesel punk. Maybe you would call it like um, electromagnetic radiation punk. Might be a little bit more accurate in terms of the more <laughs> since the diesel engine had been around for a while. But it's similar. It it's a it's a historical novel with a speculative feel because what it's obsessed with is the new technologies developed in the past that went on to shape the present and the future. It, yeah, and are continuing to shape it because I think, yeah. I mean, ju just just in the last 10 days, like a major cryptocurrency exchange oh. crashes, uh, which makes me wonder like, hmm, I wonder how, I wonder what Neil Stevenson's uh, launch, crypto launch is going he, to look he's like. He's surely now. paying attention to it. And, and, you know, the owners and the equity partners of that company are behaving very similar to the Japanese and German, you know, leaders who are secreting the gold away on some uh, tropical uh, undisclosed location. Yeah. It's happening. And that's, and that's uh, I mean, I, I do think that's one of the interesting things about this book is, is drawing out that movement of information from the physical and the analog to the divine. Um, that, that section that I wanted to read, I don't know if I've, I don't know if I've got it dog-eared, but when, when Waterhouse is in Santa Monica, he goes for a walk on the beach and he is walking through the surf and he wishes that he were a sensitive enough instrument, um, because he knows that the Japanese submarines and the ships somewhere in the very distant Pacific are changing the way that the ocean is moving. Uh. And that if only he were sensitive enough, his toes could pick up the the what the separate the meaning from the noise, um, which I just think is a marvelous metaphor for everything we do as writers and as people. Um, and I mean, you know, maybe I don't know if you have a reading from this, but that brings us to Vanek freaking in the freaking chapter, um, you know, mm -hmm. which is the the idea that. You know, a computer is issuing forth electromagnetic radiation. And if you understand enough about how that particular computer operates and you have the right sensing equipment, you can actually detect, no matter how well encrypted, the, the actual appearance of, um, you know, what the what the electron scanner is throwing up on the screen, you know, on the on the display. Um, you had an observation. Do you want to talk about that a little bit or do you have a reading from it? What did you think of the Van Eck freaking chapter? I found it interesting in terms of like, I liked, I really enjoyed the yarn. 
like I really enjoyed the what the thing. So basically, they are spying on their friend yeah. um, to try to settle a bet. Uh, there's a bet among the the um, the board of Epiphyte Corp um, that one of the members can or cannot use Van Eck freaking to read someone else's laptop through the wall of a hotel. Um, through the help of a Scandinavian software engineer who has been grievously wounded in his past um, by an exploding cathode ray tube, I believe. Put there by the Digibomber. That's right, the Digibomber, of course. Um, uh, they, they, they are successful at uh, spying on their uh, board member compatriot and reading the contents of his uh, laptop, which is a long digression about his and his wife's sexual kinks, basically, um, that he has a sexual kink about black stockings and she has a sexual kink about very expensive, very old New England um, furniture, um, which has like a sort of hilarious name the, the name uh, is uh, Gomer Bol- Bolstrud, which will be familiar to anybody who's read the Baroque cycle. Because I, if I remember correctly, Gomer Bolstrud, the human being, is a character in those in that uh, epic series of books. Um, but did, did I like it? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I enjoyed it. Um, this is kind of my question about digressions is like, is how much is too much? Um, like, at what point? Is uh, and, and in the uh, the audiobook of Cryptonomicon, there are some very funny sections where um, Rudy Hackelhaber uh, talks about vanking. I think you are just vanking, uh, and I wonder if sometimes Neil Stevenson is just wanking yeah. uh, with uh, with these chapters. Um, like a lot of Stevenson digression chapters, I can't help myself. I enjoy the getting pulled along by it. I wonder if it's really necessary uh, to to the actual book, and and I am getting a little tired by the number of pages. Uh, so I enjoyed this funhouse ride, but as I was on it, I was like, oh, I really hope there aren't too many more of these. Yeah, I think I agree with all that. And I'm going to bring up one more thing, but I do have a little reading I wanted to do. This is Godo Dengo on the deck of the ship, seeing the torpedo bombers attack. And uh, so it's on Mm -hmm. page 322 in my edition. And then I have an observation. So he's seen these airplanes drop a bomb into the water and all the Japanese soldiers are like, ha ha ha, the Americans are so terrible at bombing. They just dropped the bomb like a quarter mile away from us and they're completely unconcerned. But Goto has a um, premonition. Goto Dengo for some reason watches the bomb instead of the airplane. It does not tumble from the plane's belly, but traces a smooth, flat parabola above the waves, like an aerial torpedo. He catches his breath for a moment, afraid that it will never drop into the ocean, that it will skim across the water until it hits the destroyer that stands directly in its path. But once again, the fortunes of war smile upon the emperor's forces. The bomb loses its struggle with gravity and splashes into the water. Godo Dengo looks away. Then he looks back again, chasing a phantom that haunts the edge of his vision. The wings of foam that were thrown up by the bomb are still collapsing into the water, but beyond them, a black moat is speeding away. Perhaps it was a second bomb dropped by the same airplane. This time, Gododengo watches it carefully. It seems to be rising rather than falling. A mirage, perhaps. No, 
No, he's wrong. It's losing altitude slowly now, and it plows into the water, throws up another pair of wings, all right. And then the bomb rises out of the water again. Gododengo, a student of engineering, implores the laws of physics to take hold of this thing and make it fall and sink, which is what big, dumb pieces of metal are supposed to do. Eventually it does fall again, but then it rises up again. It is skipping across the water like the flat rocks that the boys of Kula used to throw across the fish pond near the village. Gododengo watches it skip several more times, utterly fascinated. Once again, the fortunes of war have provided a bizarre spectacle, seemingly for no other reason than to entertain him. He savors it as if it were a cigarette discovered in the bottom of a pocket. Skip, skip, skip right into the flank of one of the escorting destroyers. A gun turret flies straight up into the air, tumbling over and over. Just as it slows to its apogee, it is completely enveloped in a geyser of flame spurting out of the ship's engine room. I, I have an observation I want to make about this scene, but any, any reaction to that before I, I dive into that? A lot of the time, I think Stevenson is at his best when he is describing these granular moments of trying to make sense of the world. Um, I That moment where he talks about like a visual phantom um, that kind of draws your attention back, I mean, that's the way that perception works, is that our, our eyes and our brains are constantly sorting the world into expected and unexpected. It's like the first line, it's like a cat's whiskers for a human mm. is that sort of visual like, oh, something's different. Um, I need to pay more attention to it. Uh, I think everybody has had that experience of looking at something, expecting something, beginning to look away. And then there's a visual difference that pulls your attention back. And the coupling of that in this book that is, again, a lot about processing information but layered on top of the description of wartime and all of the chaos there, I, I really do think Stevenson does such a magical job of taking ideas and combining them with action in a way that it, I find really entrancing. And, and this is one of those moments. Yeah, and I, I think it combines four of the things that I think are necessary to tell a good story. I agree with everything that you said. And, you know, Stevenson likes violence, right? You know, and we've been promoting our podcast as Upper Middle Brow. And, you know, we're going to read some books that are not World War II violent stories, right? We're going to read some books where the stakes are more psychological, you know, sort of closer to what maybe literary fiction is thought to be. And this is, you know, part of why Stevenson, I think, doesn't get considered as literary is that he is writing a lot of action. Uh, and... This is a moment of action, though, that I think is doing like at least three or four things really well. And one is what you just said, which is narrating a kind of form of human observation. And we've talked before about Stevenson being at his best when he's describing characters who don't quite understand what's going on, making sense of the chaos around them. But it's also this is character development for Gododengo, right? Like this is him realizing an insight about why the Japanese are going to lose and what the Americans are actually good at. It's also plot because this is what's going to get Goto Dengo off the boat into the water to New Guinea. And it's also doubly character development because it's making him a survivor. And it's also another thing that Stevenson's good at, which is pointing out that a big part of what was happening in World War II, we think of it as like, 
guys shooting at each other, you know, from boats or airplanes or guns, but the shooting was almost besides the point. You know, the side that won the war was the side that figured out which technological developments were going to be the most important and invested their efforts into that. And this is an example of that. Mm. The, the Japanese military is building all these warships that, you know, you can sink with some airplanes. There was a lot of that in World War II. You know, the Bismarck <laughs> was sunk by biplanes that were carrying uh, our torpedoes in a scene in the movie Sink the Bismarck that inspired the Star Wars uh, Death Star trench running uh, scene. Um so I think that's great, but I want to contrast it with another moment where a bunch of sailors are sunk um, and lost in this book, which comes later when Beck, the naval officer, shows up and discovers that a submarine is rescuing uh, what he thinks is a Trinidadian steamer, but is actually a bunch of white Americans and allies in blackface. The The plan was they were going to get blown up, but then uh, rescued um, as part of this, uh, you know, excuse for the allies intelligence. Um, and um, it's just played for comedy. Beck shows up and I think the line in the book is something like that was a bit surprising to him. But, you know, not a surprise that he couldn't handle with a single well-placed torpedo. And then, you know, 300 men are sent to the bottom. Stevenson, the dungeon master, just chooses to kill 300 NPCs, kind of for the butt of a joke, and also as a plot device to get yep. Root, Root and Bobby Shafto onto that submarine. And I have to say, in my opinion, I'm curious what you think, when, when Gododengo survives this attack and ends up in New Guinea and eventually, you know, in the mine... Lots of people are killed. Stevenson's using his godlike power as a novelist to kill many NPCs or, you know, non-protagonist characters. I don't mind it so much in the first example I gave you because it's doing a lot of things well. But it actually really bothers me in the second example because a lot of people mm -hmm. really did die. Uh, being torpedoed and he just kind of plays it for a cheap joke and as a kind of clumsy plot device and I don't know I'm curious what you think about that too but I have to say that second example I find it to be sloppy novel writing and kind of disappointing yeah I, I find a big chunk of the u-boat section to be sloppy um, mostly because there are there's a lot of particulars. Like we learn a lot about like, well, we can't go through the North Sea because this and going up the English Channel is going to be suicide because of that. Um, and so there's a lot of details spent in that kind of very board game-ish um, attention, which I don't think is important. <laughs> like yeah. I, I would I would much prefer a like real, like the first, the first example of Godo Dengo um, sort of discovering something about himself and about his side of the war. Um, that's a real moment for a character. And the other one, I, I, a lot of it, I just don't kind of understand because I think that Stevenson didn't take enough time. He, he sort of rushed it. And cause he's like, ah, I gotta get, I gotta get Root and Shafto on board this U-boat. When Beck picks up Root and Shafto, for some reason, maybe just because Root speaks fluent German, they're like friends right off the bat. It, it's like a Keystone Cops moment. Um, yeah. Like it just, it feels odd and it feels rushed and it feels kind of lazy. And it does feel like that moment that you were talking about earlier where like, oh, the left-hand tunnel collapses. Yeah. Um, and like, let's just, 
let's like lampshade it and hand wave it and get these guys on the submarine and, and who cares about all those dead Royal Navy sailors. Yeah. I feel like the thing that we're both going to be paying attention to next time is does the plot achieve stakes in the final third? Do we start caring about what's going to happen? Yeah. Let's go to trivia. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Sure. I'm happy to go first. So um, we talked about the freaking chapter, P-H-R-E-A-K-I-N-G. The freaking chapter contains the literary device of a story within a story. Um, And there's actually a kind of funny moment at the end of it where one of the engineers says, uh, was that, do you think that was Tom Howard or was that a character he invented? And of course, one might ask the same question about Neil Stevenson, about just how confessional that story within a story might might be. It does feel like something he just like wrote one day and was like, hey, I think I see a way I can get this into the novel that I'm working on right now. Why not? What's another 10 pages in a, in a, in a 700 page novel? So my quiz question for you is about stories within a story in general. Uh, okay. it, it is a literary device that other novelists and other artists employ from time to time. So my question is, which writer wrote a story within a story that includes a character who only walks on his hands? And it's multiple choice. Are you ready for the multiple choice? I'm ready. Thank God it's multiple choice. <laughs> um, A, Michael Shabon. B, Mary Shelley. C, Tom Stoppard. Or D, John Irving. Oh my God. Any of those writers could be doing that. Chabon, Mary Shelley, Tom Stoppard. Who was the last one? John Irving. John Irving. Irving does do a lot of story within a story. And he is, he he really is interested in, in this kind of like slightly off the beaten path, uh, kind of thing. Um, and I do know there is a story, a very important story within a story for John Irving, I believe in the world, according to Garp, um, about a bear, uh, that, uh, was one of Irving's first submissions and it was rejected someplace. And apparently the, uh, literary journal that rejected his short story about the bear has that story now hanging on a wall as a reminder to not miss this the next time. Um, and the bear is sort of in a kind of circus context. So I am going to go with John Irving. Um, I've done a lot of uh, justifying my choice uh, as a way to sound like I know what I'm talking about. I don't know if that's correct, but that's what I'm going to go with. Excellent reasoning. Uh, one, you're exactly right um, in all details because uh, – it is John Irving. It is the Pension Grill Parser, which is the story within a story. That's in what the it's called. Oh, I was like, it was. I do. I was like, there's something German about it. <laughs> and you're exactly right in even figuring out that there was a kind of circus context, which is where the man who only walks on his hands appeared. And I don't really remember that story other than it's the memoir 
of a middle-aged guy remembering being a kid and his family reviewed hotels and pensions for a living. And that was how they got free vacations. And there's a scene where the man who walks only on his hands, uh, the main character as a kid senses that he's standing outside the door because he can see his fingers underneath the door crack at, at one point. And I just remember that uh, visual <laughs> image. So excellent job. Uh, you win. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> I, I it's I've been on a I've been on a losing string with these with these trivia questions. Turned um, it around. So that's, uh, that's good. I'm glad I'm glad I got there. So my uh, my question uh, you, you probably might have been able to pick up on this. I'm I'm definitely interested in the fact that Stevenson is uh trying to launch his own blockchain, which it's actually not a currency. It as far as I can tell is a way for creatives to maintain ownership of their creations in a rapidly changing intellectual property landscape. Right, um, right. I'm not a big fan of NFTs just because I think it is a bit of a shell game um, coupled with a huge energy expenditure. Um, but I do understand that there are going to be concepts of um, copyright law and intellectual property that are, that are only going to get more snarled. Um, and some sort of distributed ledger is probably a good idea. I, I just think the way we're going about it's not a great idea. But his blockchain is called Lamina One or Lamina Prime. Uh, I, I wasn't able to figure out which of those it is. It kind of appears in different formats across the internet. The one that it seems to be its own marketing appears to be Lamina Prime. Um, but my trivia question, what does Lamina mean? Is it A, a consonant sound, formed by pressing the blade of the tongue against the alveolar ridge, B, a thin layer or plate of sedimentary rock, or C, the actual thing in a liminal space, the thing that separates two entities. Oh, man. That's an excellent, excellent poser. Um, I don't think it's C. I just think it would be too neat for the thing that separates two things in a liminal space to be the lamina. That just seems a little... Um, it's also very Stevenson to engage in this kind of wordplay, um, which I don't yep. you know. You haven't read Anathem, but Anathem has so much of that. Um, so the other option was a, a fricative consonant phoneme created by the, the blade of the tongue touching uvular ridge did i remember that correctly uh the the al alveolar ridge it's 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 kind of the roof of the mouth but but towards the back yeah the alveola are the um are the inner nostrils that allow you to taste um mm. okay and what was what was and the, the other one was a, a a thin layer or plate of sedimentary rock thin layer or plate of sedimentary rock all right i'm going to think this one out a little bit uh i don't think it's c i may be wrong Stevenson is interested in geology, that's for sure, but he's interested in so many different things, including linguistics, that both A and B are sort of plausible um, in that context. Um, and he clearly, actually given 
the other thing that was happening during the freaking chapter, which was uh, Randy's research of uh, Andy and the hive mind, um, displayed the fact that Stevenson has read some, you know, postmodern linguistic theory um, and is, uh, is passing familiar with some of the language, including um, linguistic memes or semantic memes. Um, lamina. Think, and I'm thinking about here of the German scientists talking about the kind of rock that the data is being held in and uh, pointing out that the rock is much stronger than the rock uh, that the Libyans have imposed their, you know, deadly poison chemical weapons in, in a moment I don't fully understand. Uh, it, um, so I'm going to go with B. You are correct. Excellent work. Hey. Uh, a lamina is a thin plate of, uh, yeah, brilliant. Well, well reasoned. Um, a thin layer or plate of sedimentary rock. And uh, yeah, so I, I think that what he's after with the title of this company is, I believe, Lamina Prime. I think the idea here is that it's sort of the the bedrock of intellectual property in the future. Yeah. I, I, that maybe that's the thing he's going for. But uh, yeah, yeah, excellent yeah, I feel like we both kind of Hercule Poirot our way into that. You know, we were sort of like, you know, let's use the little gray cells and imagine what we know about the individual in question. And uh, yeah, that was fun. That was a tough one. Why don't you uh, Why don't you tell us what's next? We are going to finish uh, Cryptonomicon and also finish our mini early Neil Stevenson series. Um, so we're going to read the final third of the book uh, and talk about it next time. Awesome. Well, listeners, thank you so much for spending some more time with us um, yes. as we consider Neil Stevenson and his early works and uh, continue to explore the world of Upper Middlebrow. Um, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. At the moment, we are live on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can find us at UpperMiddleBrow.com. Upper Middlebrow is a Small Point production, Chris Bagg and Jesse Dukes producers. Music from Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Woo. You can learn more about us at UpperMiddleBrow.com. See you next time, y'all. <laughs>